Get your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're taking a break today from our Ephesians series uh, because about half the congregation is away, right? The ladies are, and so the elders have determined um, from this point forward that uh, when a big chunk are gone, we're going to uh, then have a topical sermon or a, or a standalone sermon uh, that will fill in for this this um, this day today. So, so I'm blessed today to to bring to you. Um, maybe it's sort of a lecture, maybe it's sort of a sermon, and I will go with what uh, Abner Chow says, uh, president now of the Masters University. It's a lerman. Okay, so so today you will have a lecture sermon or a lerman. Uh, we could consider this part of our Christ and Culture series. We have not officially entitled uh, the things we preach before the Christ and Culture series, but uh, starting today we will. Uh, if you look on our, our website, you will see sermons there on biblical anthropology, what it is to be man, woman, uh, family. We have Sanctity of Life uh, sermon there uh, regarding abortion and why life is sacred, made in the image of God. We have sermons there on family and on marriage. And so this sermon would fit within, within that uh, genre of, of sermons there. Um, and so that is that. I will say up front as well that this is not an expository sermon. I'm not going to exegete this uh, large, uh, this chapter of Genesis, but I want it to ground us in where we're going today. And I think as we go through the sermon, you'll understand why we're starting right here. As we read this passage, I want you to make special note of the three words, and God said, and God said. So let's read now together the inspired and infallible word of God. It is true, and we believe it. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which, their, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the, great, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beast of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to Everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness, which we have proclaimed already as we have sung these songs together, these psalms of worship, we thank you for the faithful leaders. and Our leader today, Isaac, as he led, and we're thankful for Dennis and for Noah when they lead. Men who devote themselves to the reading of your word and thinking deeply about how we should praise you each morning in light of the sermons that will be preached. So, Lord, as we even have read your word this morning, we see that you spoke... And as you spoke into existence everything that is, it was good. In the creation of man and woman, it was very good. Lord, help us to believe, help us to understand, help us to obey your word, help us to not shrink back from the culture that sometimes is very seriously against you, but to stand firm, to believe your word, and to use our words to glorify and honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, today I've entitled this Lerman, Words Matter Because the Word, capital W, Because the Word Matters. And I have three uh, simple points, basically. It's number one, our shocking situation. Number two, the unsurprising source. And number three, the sovereign solution. So let's go ahead and get started, and you'll see where we're going here. Number one, our shocking situation. In 1949, an English author published a novel that would become a classic of the 20th century. Many of you have read this novel. Many of, it was, many of you had uh, required reading in high school. It was a cry against totalitarianism in all of its forms. It was a warning of what might be the future. That author was George Orwell, and his novel was 1984. Orwell imagined a dystopian future, and a dystopian, a utopian future is that which is when, when a society decides they're going to make heaven on earth. They're going to create paradise. And so dystopian movies and dystopian novels are that which when a man tries to make utopia, it always ends up becoming dystopia, not utopia. So Orwell imagined here a dystopian future ruled by Big Brother, where speech is censored and the population is constantly surveilled, creating a culture of fear. The citizens are monitored by the thought police who tamp down freedom of thought, speech, and action. The main character in the novel is named Winston, and through a series of events, he is arrested by the thought police, and he's brought in for retraining or reprogramming. Part of that programming is to, is to recite that 2 plus 2 equals 5. You see, in Orwell's dystopian nation of Oceania, the authoritarian regime controls every aspect of society in order to exercise complete dominance over the country and population. The essence of Big Brother's omnipotence is best expressed by the party's claim that 2 plus 2 equals 5. This impossible mathematic equation illustrates the manipulation of truth. Winston himself insists on the objectivity of truth, represented by the contrasting statement, 2 plus 2 equals what? 4. Orwell's warning, however, is that truth itself can be manipulated and undermined by the state. A couple of quotes from this novel, one that comes from O'Brien, who is um, one of the thought police who is working on Winston. He says this, Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. The state in Orwell's book is, is one that is using people as utilitarian pieces and, and we have the power to take you apart and put you back together so that you think and act the way we want you to think and act. In the novel, there's a thing called newspeak, which is all these different words that have been redefined to mean different things. He says this, O'Brien says to Winston, don't you see that the whole aim of newspeak is to narrow the range of thought. In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. You see, in Orwell's society there, they're, they're actually changing all the words in such a way that pretty soon no communication or thinking almost is even left because words are meaningless. Orwell's 1984 novel comes to a tragic conclusion 
as Winston finally succumbs to torture and repeats the totalitarian state's mantra, two plus two equals five. You see the state in Orwell's novel, the masters of of that state know what the power of words are. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Orwell's 1984 is not that different than the culture we find ourselves in today. Only a few years ago, you may have heard of Peter Vlaming, a high school French teacher who was fired 2018 after he refused to use male pronouns when referring to a female student. Thank God that that uh, case has gone toward the Supreme Court and now the Supreme Court has ordered that school to reinstate this high school teacher. Only uh, a few, uh, what, what, what is this, 2000, we're in 22, aren't we? It wasn't a few anything, it was this year. <laughs> Kentonji Brown-Jackson at her confirmation hearing, most of you probably are familiar with this, Senator Marsha Blackburn asked the Supreme Court nominee to define the word woman. Can you define the word woman? And now our Supreme Court justice said this, I can't. Can you define the word woman? I can't. You can't, Blackburn said. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist, Jackson said. I was at a recent event with Hayden for his schooling program near Biola campus, and there was a biologist there that's a professor, and this was that week. And so when I saw this professor, he says, oh, I'm a professor of biology. I said, oh, great, I have a question for you. Can you define woman? And he kind of like was like, yeah, <laughs> what? And he said, an adult female human, right? And he got into probably chromosomes and stuff, but, but yes, an adult female human. It's not just the reality of women, though, that is in question in our culture today, but the reality of men or the reality of a husband, I would define a husband as an adult male that is covenantally bound in marriage to an adult female. That's a husband. And I would hold that it's impossible for two men to be husbands. It's impossible. Two plus two equals five. A wife, an adult female that is covenantally bound in marriage to an adult male. Marriage is a covenantal lifelong bond between a man and a woman. And only a man and a woman can be married. Sex. There's been a redefinition of sex that came years ago. There are not too many young people in here today. Sex can only be had between a man and a woman. Some of you are going, whoa, you're on tilt. Wait a minute, what? Sex can only be had between a man and a woman because they have the proper plumbing to have intercourse. It's designed by God. For the procreation of children, there's a reason and a purpose that God has in His good design when He spoke and it was and said, It is good. The 
There's no such thing as phone sex or any other kind of sex except that which a man and a woman can be engaged in. Here's the last one that I heard recently that was, is dumbfounding. Uh, a commentator was called a hater and, and was a lot of, of quote-unquote, you know, <laughs> shade was being thrown his direction, right? Because he had the gall to say that men can't get pregnant. Pregnant. How can we believe that, what? To say a man can't get pregnant is to be a hater, to be somehow uh, hateful. We could multiply examples of these terms that our grandparents would easily understand and define, but now they're coming under attack. Brothers and sisters, we are living in an upside-down world where right is wrong and left is right, and moral decisions are based not on reason or Scripture, but on emotion and feelings. If I feel it, it obviously makes it so. I feel, therefore I am. I feel, therefore I am. To be an adult and to be a Christian is, I, I have many feelings. But to be mature is to say, sometimes when I feel a certain way, I don't do that. <laughs> I may be angry, I may feel anger or mean or want to lash out, but just because I have those feelings doesn't mean that I act upon them. Usually if I act upon those emotions or those feelings, usually that's what we call sin, when we react to something, isn't it? Carl Truman, in his newly published masterpiece, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and I was kicking myself this morning because I, I had it out to bring. He has two books. One is the big book, which is uh, The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self. It's about 400 pages, very, very powerful book. And he has a little book that's a summary of that. It's about 200 pages called Strange New World. But in the, in, in the beginning of that book, he opens with an examination of this thoroughly modern statement sometimes heard. I am trapped. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Dr. Truman observes this statement would have called forth laughter from his late grandfather. As a, as, a, as a piece of incoherent gibberish. I mean, think about your grandfather, your great-grandfather, and someone saying, I'm a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And they would say, what, what are you even talking about? That's just bizarre. That, it, doesn't even, it, it does not compute. And yet now, to deny or question in some way, this idea is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. I'm going to talk to you today really about one aspect of this cultural phenomena. And I'm limiting it in some ways to the idea of words themselves. There's much that could be written about this. As I said, Carl Truman's book is 400 pages long. And I can't preach that long today. <laughs> so let me talk about specifically the idea of words. So let me ask a question. What is a word? Most of you know that I am an um, elementary school teacher. I work in the area of special education, and, and my specialty is working with children who struggle with reading. And so I teach children how to read. That's what I do for a living. So this is my definition, first of all. What is a word? Here's my definition, and I'll unpack it. A word is a phoneme. 
A word is a phoneme or individual sound or collection of phonemes that when blended together form a syllabic or multisyllabic vocalization that is a container of meaning. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? A phoneme is an individual sound. Okay? So, so b is a phoneme. All right? We got that? B is a phoneme. So I take those individual sounds, k, m, a, and I put those together to make syllables, you know, one syllable like bat or cat or fat, and I put those together like fan, a multisyllable word could be fan-tastic. Say it fast. Fantastic. There you go. Now that's how you teach kids to read, right? <laughs> All right. And so, but those words are containers of meaning, Okay. Some can just be the word like the word I. It's only a one phoneme. It only has one sound, I. If it's said in, uh, in you know, hitting your thumb with a hammer, you might say, I! <laughs> okay, that's maybe not a word. <laughs> that is an utterance. But when I use the word I as container of meaning, I'm referring to the person that I call myself. Okay, I, right? So let's take one that, that we often use as children begin to learn. The word it starts with uh, this sound, k, then a, ah, and then t. And then with my kids, I would write that, right? C, A, T, let's sound it out. K, at. Now I'd say, say it fast, cat. Now, what I'm not talking about here is different languages. And you say, well, well Kevin, we're, there are other words for cat. Yes, if I'm Spanish, I may say gato, right? Did I say that correctly? Anybody can correct me on my Spanish? Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, my Brazilian. Tudo bem. Thank you. Tudo bem. <laughs> my Brazilian brother. Gato, right? I'm not talking about other languages. I'm talking about taking the word cat and then infusing it with another meaning. So when I'm teaching my children to words, I sometimes can be rather silly with my little kids, kindergartners, first graders, second graders. And so I might write the word cat on the board and then say, Okay, let me sound it out. Bat. And they go, no, Mr. Brian. Right? And I go, oh, let me try again. Matt. No, Mr. Brian, stop. That's not what it is. Oh, let me try it again. Sat. No. Right? I'm just being, and they would say, they could say, like with, along with the great philosopher Larry, uh, the cucumber, stop being so silly. Right? Uh, those of us who are homeschooled probably know that reference. Others are like, whoosh. <laughs> stop being so silly. At that level... If I'm saying a word means something else, or if I hold, say the word cat and hold up a picture of a dog, they're going to say, no, that's not a cat, that's a dog, right? At that level, I'm being silly. But what if I ind insisted that every time I show them the word cat, I hold up a picture of a dog and say, this is a cat, this is a cat. And they say, no, no, it's not. And, I say, and, I, and then I, I get the report cards and I, I fail them in reading because they don't identify this furry canine as a cat. What if I go on beyond that and I say, well, actually, uh, Mr. Brown, if you don't teach that a cat is a dog in this way, then you're actually going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to buy or sell. You're not going to be able to function in society because you don't believe what the state is saying. The state has proclaimed that this furry feline is actually a furry canine and this thing is a dog. We move from silly to cruel to tyrannical, or even worse, or even worse. That brings us to point number two. 
the unsurprising source. As we look at these words, and in our workplaces, and in our society, people who are authorities telling us that we must use other words that do not correspond to reality, as in use he or him or his for a biological woman. What is the source of this? What is the ultimate source of this? Genesis 3 tells us. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3. And I, I titled this point The Unsurprising Source because it's not surprising. You're all ahead of me, most of you probably. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, he's talking to Eve here, right? God has told them not to eat of the tree. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? What Satan here is attacking is God's spoken word. That which he has spoken into existence, that which he has designed, that's what, that, that, what, what he has designed as good. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God has said this, but I say this. You will not surely die. And then he gives his reasons. Four, right? Four means because. Because God knows, right? Impugns God's character. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't listen to God because He doesn't know best. He's actually a puny God that's worried about His character, right? He's, he wants to be above all you guys. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, she sees it. It was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent, Satan, is a deceiver. Satan is a deceiver. And his goal is always to distort and twist the truth of God's good design. Satan is a deceiver, and his goal is always to distort and twist 
God's good design. When Jesus is found debating with the scribes and the Pharisees in John 10, verses 8 to 10, it says this, all, uh, Jesus stands and says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's, he, he is not the thief. He is the good shepherd, right? But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What does the thief do? The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief comes, Satan comes to do one thing, uh, a number of things actually, to steal the glory of God. To steal the glory of God. We will make man in our own image. Idolatry. We will destroy the image of God in man. We will make God, uh, man in our image. What is happening in our culture today is that, is that people are looking about and saying, saying, I don't feel this way. I don't think I should act this way. And so I'm going to act any way I want. And I'm going to feel any way I want. And I'm going to demand that you treat me the way I want to be treated. And in that, to be pulled into or snared into lying about God's good design. To slander God's creation. God is created. He said, it is good. This is the way I want it to be. I am God. That's what it is to be God. John 8, 44, Jesus speaking again, he says, he speaks to the Pharisees and scribes, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, so killing and destroying, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's goal is to oppose all that God has done. He has no ability to create, to give life, to speak truth. All he can do is lie, twist, distort, and attempt to destroy God's good work. So that's the unsurprising source. When we see these things happening in our culture, yes, we can, we can quickly go to, well, that's the left, or that's Marxism, and I would agree, yes, it is, or that's communism, yes, it is, or that's just uh, 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 radical liberals trying to do these things, of course it is. But ultimately, what is the source of these things? The ultimate source is from Satan himself. To have a little girl with, with beauty, who looks like a little girl stand before me at my school and demand for me to call her a boy. That's the life that I'm living. That's the place where I am. And so, and so I'm preaching these, these sermons and, and, and trying to help you and embolden you and, and encourage you to stand on the foundation of the Word of God because if it hasn't come to your business place or your HR development, it's going to be here this year or next year or soon after that. And when you're sitting with 20 people in this wonderful trust group, <laughs> having some kind of HR development thing, doing trust falls and going on retreats, those kind of things, I spent four hours this summer in an LGBTQ plus training And they say, what are your pronouns? What are you going to do? What are your pronouns? I just say, look at me. 
So look at me. You know what my pronouns are. Let's not be stupid. <laughs> look at me. Because reality is right here in front of you. Reality is here in front of you. And we're in, a, in an era where the emperor has no clothes, has been elevated to, to philosophical brilliance. No, the emperor has no clothes. No, I see it. I know it. You know what I am. You see me. You know me. I'm definitely Mr. Brian on that campus. What's the sovereign solution? How do we, how do we deal with these things? Those are a real problem uh, that, we're, that we're, we're working against. And these are hard things, I understand. And they're, they're challenging things for, for us. The sovereign solution. First of all, I'm going to steal from from uh, the old book of uh, the, the military guys probably have to read. I don't know if they still do or not, but, uh, but uh, Sung Tzu, The Art of War. <laughs> One of his chapters is, know your enemy. <laughs> know your enemy. That's what Peter says. Who is our enemy? 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, believers. Be sober-minded, don't, don't, have a, don't have a tipsy mind. Don't have a, a drunken mind. Be sober-minded. Think clearly. Know what you're thinking about. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, war, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So first, we need to know our enemy. Who's our enemy? It's Satan, right? He is our adversary, and he is busy about trying to devour unsuspecting Folks, James 4, 4, uh, James says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The challenge here is to say, I love, oh man, I go to worship and I love God and I lift my hands and I sing these beautiful songs and I get these wonderful feelings. I love God so much. But when I see his good design, I hate his good design. I love God, but I hate your design. It's like going, I've given this it's like going to a museum and seeing a Van Gogh and, and say, oh, I just love Van Gogh, but I hate that painting. Well, that's a Van Gogh. Why do you hate Van Gogh? I don't hate Van Gogh. I just hate all these paintings. Those are all by Van Gogh. You hate Van Gogh. No, I love Van Gogh. Right? We love God. We love Him. We love Him. Look at His good design. Marriage, men, women, family, babies. No, I love God, but I hate His design. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James is saying here is, pick a side. Pick a side. Pick a side. Which side are you going to be on? God's side or the world's side? Romans 12, 2. What do we do? We also have to be conformed. Remember the old uh, moms or dads? Remember Plato Village? I don't know if they still have, not Plato Village, Plato Factory. That's what it is. The Plato Factory, right? I loved it when Hayden had the Play-Doh factory. We all remember that, right? You get the Play-Doh, and it's got these little molds, and it has this one you can crank out this, like you're making sausage, right? And it goes out, right? But you take this thing, and you take this Play-Doh, and you push it down in here, and then you squeeze it in, right? And you pop it out, and it's conformed to the image that you've squeezed it into, right? 
I don't know that Paul had that in mind when he wrote this, but this is exactly <laughs> what it's like. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into its image. Do you see that? That's what's happening around us, is that the world is trying to squeeze us into its image by pressure, by threat, by the loss of employment, by the loss of good reputation, by calling us names. You're a racist. You're a homophobe. You're a bigot. You're so backwards. Do not be conformed to this world. But what does Paul say? He says, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, that by the testing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we need to know our enemy. We've got to pick a side. We've got to get our head in the game, if I can say it that way, about being transformed. And finally, we've got to get suited up. We've got to get suited up. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and here's our marching orders as we deal with this culture around us. And, and things, things have not really changed. Nothing's changed since Paul's time. Ephesians chapter 6. Christians, get suited up. Starting with verse 10. Finally, he says, he's already told us to, to love our wives, to, to love our husbands, to, to raise our children, to, to love them, for children to obey their parents, for, uh, for, for slaves to obey their masters, for masters to be good, good, good employees or good, good masters. And then he ends with this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's what I'm talking about today. These are schemes of the devil. How do we stand against these schemes? We put on the whole armor of God. We get suited up. We get ready because we know His attacks will come. Verse 12. Now, here's the thing to really remember. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My battle is not against my co-workers who aren't believers. My battle is not with them specifically. I'm commanded to love them, pray for them, give the gospel to them. My battle is not with them specifically. You're not wrestling against, against humans right there, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those ideologies, those philosophies that they may have embraced, I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to give them the gospel. I'm trying to argue them out of these thinkings out of these philosophies verse 13 therefore since this is what our battle is our battle is not against flesh and blood but 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 against these rulers authorities cosmic powers what are we to do we take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm notice here he says stand stand and stand when these things happen in your workplace, in your community, in your family, with your uncle, with your aunt, with your cousins, 
that are battling these kinds of issues, what do you do? You stand, and you stand, and you stand. Stand, therefore, there's the fourth stand, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your shoes, uh, have, have, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And Paul ends that this way. And also for me that words, notice, that words may be given to me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says we got to get ready, we got to get suited up, we have to have our armor ready, bound with truth, our helmet of salvation, our shield of faith, which is Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have our sword, which is the Word of God, prepared to do battle against these cosmic forces. And then notice again, what does he say? Pray for me. What, the, what, pray for me that words may be given me, that I may proclaim the gospel which I ought to speak. Years ago, when I was working in Watts, I was there for maybe 10 years or so, I had uh, playground duty in the morning. Most teachers, you show up early and you got to stand on the playground and, and watch the kids, make sure that nobody, you know, kills anybody with a dodgeball, right? Or whatever, right? So, so you're watching the kids and, and teachers will talk, right? Because we'll be there and you'll stand over, you know, you know, one guy's looking that way and one guy's looking that way and we'll you know, have conversation on the yard in the morning. And I had a friend there who was my colleague, and we began, I think he started it, in a, 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 a conversation about abortion. And every morning for 30 minutes, for probably a week, we would debate abortion, talk about it. And I would give my reasons why it's not good, and this, and he'd go back and forth and back and forth. After about a week, all of a sudden, I, a light bulb went on. I am wasting my time. I need to be proclaiming something else to him, not the ills or the wrongs or the, the sin of abortion, but I need to give my friend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I believe that abortion is wrong? Because I love Jesus. Why do I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Because I love Jesus. And so I, I changed my tact. I'd love to say that he came to faith right then and you know prayed the sinner's prayer right there on the slide in the elementary school playground. But, but I didn't give up. I gave him the gospel. I invited him to a gospel, uh, I actually invited him to promise keepers, if you guys remember promise keepers back in the day. He went with me. And so he heard the gospel over and over again. But we have to, uh, it reminds me actually of a story John MacArthur told uh, at the Shepherds Conference a few years back. He was talking about when he's invited on to Larry King. He's often invited on to the, the show, which is no longer on, right? But on the Larry King show, and there, there John MacArthur is being uh, talking with Larry King and someone asked him in this uh, little quorum thing, someone asked him about those times on Larry King, how do you prepare, right, to go on Larry King? And MacArthur kind of laughed and kind of, you know, <laughs> chuckled and looked and says, well, actually, I don't because it really doesn't matter what 
questions Larry asks me, I always have the same answer. <laughs> no matter what Larry's going to ask, what's John MacArthur going to do? Give him the gospel. <laughs> the gospel. The gospel. He's going to turn it toward the gospel because the gospel is the only way to have your mind transformed. And brothers and sisters, this morning I want to be very bold with you and loving as well. If your mind is not transformed, it's because you haven't believed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches us that yes, we're sinners. As Pastor Warren told us, as we tell you every Sunday, yes, we're sinners. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God who came for us and, and died His death once for all. And because of that, I think Warren said it this morning, Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. How I think, how I act, how I work, how I love my wife, how I raise my kids. Jesus changes everything. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, okay, even though we're humans, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Okay, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not picking up weapons to go and whack my, my unbelieving friend to take him out. No, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When Jesus stood before Pilate, when Jesus stood before Pilate, listen to this transaction. I'm sure you're familiar with it. John 18, 33, 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be, uh, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, So you're a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Why did Jesus come into the world? To bear witness to the truth. Then he says this, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to bear witness, to stand like a, like, like a witness in a, in a courtroom setting and, and testify about the truth. I came to bear witness to the truth. And if you listen to Jesus, if you are of the truth, you will hear Jesus' voice. And this is what the world says. This is what your friends are going to say. This is what Pilate says. What is truth? In today's world, it would be whatever. <laughs> whatever. What is, the, what is the truth? Many of you may have heard of the correspondence view of truth. What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's the correspondence view of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So if I tell you that this is a wooden pulpit, if it is a wooden pulpit, that's the truth, right? This is wood, 
it is a pulpit, then that is true. If I say, this is a wooden pulpit, and you come up and look at it, and it's actually made out of steel, you would say, that's not true, Kevin. It's not a wooden pulpit, it's a steel pulpit, right? Or it's a plastic pulpit, or whatever. But no, it's, it's wood. That's a correspondence view of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. But here's my question. How do we know what is reality? How do we know what is reality? And my answer to you would be this. That which corresponds to the Word of God. So really, truth is that which corresponds to the Word of God. When a gentleman shows up at your workplace with a really pretty wig and a beautiful flowery dress and says, please call me a woman, you go here. You go here. It's not his reality. It's God's reality. It's our reality. This is the Word of God. That's how we know what is real, what is true, what is right, what is good. When I was going through this situation uh, a couple of years ago with this seven-year-old who the grandparents decided was a boy, I was talking to a district uh, professional, and that person who was a friend of mine and well-meaning said, you know, uh, we have a book. We have a book that we could give you that would be very helpful to you about this. And I said to them, I have a book. I have a book. I don't need a book that tells me how to think or feel or act regarding these issues. I have a book. And because my battle is not with flesh and blood, I'm going to be loving and caring and kind toward that person. But we have a book. Who made the universe? This book answers these questions. Who made the universe? How was the universe made? Why was the universe made? What's wrong with the universe? How is it going to be made right? What is my ultimate purpose in life? All these are answered in this book by these words and ultimately by the Word, capital W. The written Word and the living Word. Jesus himself said it. I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At the end of uh, Carl Truman's book, he gives some practical advice that's quite interesting how simple it is. And I'm going to give you some of the same practical advice. How do we deal with these issues that are facing us? And I don't want you to walk away. Uh, the things I'm talking about today, many years ago, would just be hypotheticals, wouldn't they? Hypothetical. That's something, that's crazy. That's in the future. Some of you are dealing with this or have dealt with it already in your workplaces or with your families or in, in your homes. 
And I, and I don't want you to walk away and believe what I would call the evangelical myth. That is, if I stand for Christ, everything's going to be okay in this situation. If I stand up for Jesus, everything's going to be great. No, the, the, the bottom line might be, if I stand up for Jesus, guess what? Pastor Kevin got fired last week for standing up for Jesus. When John made a political move and went to Herod and said, Hey, you shouldn't be sleeping with her. The evangelical myth would say, Oh, you're right. Convicted. He falls down. He gets baptized. He becomes a believer. No. They have a party. And they say, What do you want? I want John the Baptist's head right here on a platter. Because of what John the Baptist said, he was beheaded. But guess what, brothers and sisters? I heard someone say this at a sermon a while back. John the Baptist is not in heaven right now saying, Ah, oh, man. Ah, oh, I wish I didn't speak the truth. <laughs> I wish I didn't love Jesus that much. No, he's a martyr for Christ. And Jesus sees him in heaven with his glorified body, not standing there with a head like this, right? <laughs> with his glorified body, renewed, and Jesus, the king of the universe, says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. So here's the simple practical solutions to, to staying true to the word, using right words, not giving way to lies like Satan is doing, not going against Christ and the church and what God has created, his good design. Here's, here's, here's the simple things to do. Number one, go to church. <laughs> okay? Go to church. We see it all the time here as pastors. We could use it as a thermometer, or as, a, as, as a symptom to see people beginning to walk away from Christ. What do they start? Do, where do they start? They start by not going to church. Then they miss again, and they miss again, and they miss again, and pretty soon you're like, where is that person? Oh, they... they and next thing you know, oh yeah, they're just they're off the rails. So go to church. Worship God together with believers. Read your Bible. Be in the Word. Pray. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your children. Listen to the preaching of the whole counsel of God. Be a diligent employee. Be a good boss. Love the truth. Know the truth. Live the truth. Speak the truth. And when the powers that be ask you to say two plus two equals five, you'll be ready to speak, with, speak the truth boldly because you know that your words matter because the word matters. And he is the only one ultimately that you answer to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your written word contained within this book that is referred to as the Bible. It is the very word of God. To believe these words or to believe your very words. To believe these words or to believe you. And to disobey these words or to disobey the very God of the universe. We believe that about this word. Lord, help us to be obedient. I know that many of these things I've said today are going to be very challenging for many because many are caught up in these situations even now. 
And I do not want to make light of the, of the great cultural pressure that comes to bear on us within our workplaces. This is costly. This is costly. For some of us, it might be the first time that we've actually been asked to actually sacrifice something for you. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that you will strengthen them, that they will be filled with such love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All the fruits of the Spirit would grow in their lives in such a way that they would have such freedom to honor and obey you because they love you so much that to do otherwise would be unthinkable. We look forward, Lord Jesus, to seeing you face to face, and we can pray. Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing again, and if you have any prayers or concerns, you can come forward and see the elders.